Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Helping Couples Heal. This is Marnie, and I am with Dwayne. Hello, everyone. And as promised, today we have brought back a, a guest who was with us a couple of months ago. He is a writer and a transformational journalist and a friend of mine, uh, Neil Strauss. And um, we're just really going to jump in today and sort of pick up the conversation from where we left off last time, maybe expanding on and getting more clear about a few of the things that Neil mentioned. And then, and most important, talking about the work that Neil mentioned towards the end of the last podcast, which is about the work that he did with PIT therapy, which is post-induction therapy, uh, which is a model that I'm I'm trained in and, and love and was created by Pia Melody, who's a wonderful, amazing person and author. So we're going to sort of just dive into um, the questions about Neil's journey and then bring PIT into it. And hopefully you'll be able to get a lot of your questions answered. Great. So, yeah, I know we left off on some cliffhangers last time. Yeah. Yes. So welcome back. Okay. Thanks for having me back. Definitely. And I and I and I didn't get to I didn't get to be on the on the uh, podcast the last time. So I was excited to be able to be on this one with you because I definitely had some questions for you that after listening to it that I wanted to ask you. Perfect. So, so do you want to want to go first? Why? Yeah. I, I I guess let's just jump in. I would say to the listeners, if if you're starting to listen to this one. Go back to the first one, listen to that first, and then listen to it. And I think the questions will be more in context. So the question I had, and I was wondering as you were as you were talking in the last interview, you talked about a specific moment in therapy that was really profound for you. Um, I believe it was you were in therapy and the therapist started asking you about your mother and you know whether she liked your girlfriends or not. And I think you responded, oh, she hated all my girlfriends. And you started to talk about this mother enmeshment and that that was a profound change for you. And I I wanted to know more about that change. Like how did that shift you inside in this journey of healing? Because your words were, it was literally um, the moment that changed my life in rehab. And I think it was while you were doing your timeline. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important because with that timeline, when you have all your, your key pivotal moments in your life laid out in front of you. And all of a sudden when she told me what enmeshment was, uh, and the idea of a child being used to meet the parents' needs, all of a sudden it just all came into focus, as I said. And the reason it changed my life. And there's a young quote, I quote a lot. Cause I think it's the quote that defines all this work. I hope I didn't do it last podcast, but it's been a little while. We've both been through so much since then. I know. I. Um, <laughs> yes. So the, uh, uh, which is 
until you make the unconscious conscious, it'll rule your life and you'll call it fate. Yes. Did I, did I use that quote last time? I think you did, but you know what? Okay. I love it. I love it. I'm like closing my eyes and putting my hand on my heart and it just feels so, it's so profound. No, it defines this entire work. And so that was the moment when the unconscious became conscious. And when that, when that happens, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling you feel inside. It's not an intellectual realization, like your whole body senses the truth of it. And all of a sudden that wall comes down, for, you know, at least for a moment, uh, it comes down, but it can't be, it's very difficult to rebuild it again, once you see what it is. Uh, and, and, and that was it. It's like, all of a sudden I saw this, this childhood pattern that I'd been living my entire life out of thinking, oh, that's who I am. One of my pet peeves, by the way, is when someone says, I'm like this, I, the I am statements when no, you're, you're not, there's very little that you are. Most of but you, but uh, you've only learned that, and that's your pet peeve. After you've had after, this whole, oh, yeah, yeah. Every, <laughs> everything, everything I say, no, post on Instagram, probably write about since all that was the turning point because I became conscious. Before, it's just you know who am I going to blame? <laughs> that that isn't right. myself. So yeah. I have a question. I have a really important question that's a follow up to what Dwayne just asked. So you had this incredible epiphany in your treatment during your timeline, and it was about your mother. A lot of people, when they're going through treatment, have epiphanies or they they learn about themselves. They figure things out and and have these like aha moments. But for a lot of people, it's like, okay, but then what, right? Like, how is the knowledge of this going to help me be different in my life or move forward or heal? Right. So I'm curious for you, you didn't just, I mean, it was a profound aha moment, but then it actually helped push you in a direction of healing. And I'm curious what that looked like. Yeah, I, I think that there are a few things. What one one is there? There's I'm totally going to misquote Gandhi, but it's like you know, uh, uh, like understanding or something begins a change. It's like understanding begins a change, action makes it happen, or something. So it's really just the beginning of the change. And I almost want to say that for most people, probably the most frustrating part. Another model to I'll, I'll use as an example is NLP. They talk about learning goes from unconscious incompetence, which means you're doing it wrong and you don't even know you're doing it wrong or what it is to unconscious, uh, sorry, to conscious incompetence, which is once you have the understanding, you're like, oh, I'm aware that I have this pattern of whatever, dating unavailable people or dating uh, very needy people that I feel like I have to rescue, whatever your pattern is. And yet you're aware of it and you keep doing it. You're like, this next one's going to be different. And then you pick the exact same person. And you're like, I could swear they were different. How did I unconsciously do that? So, so this is the part where really is the most frustrating. And a lot of people kind of give up on the work because they throw their hands up. I can't change. Or what's the point of this? I'm worse self than I was before. Because before, you, you know, there's an ignorance is bliss factor. <laughs> now, you, now you watch yourself with all your best judgment and best willpower doing it. Which could create a lot of self-loathing for people. It could be, like you said, it can make it really worse. It, it can. I think there's a big problem with shame in self-improvement, uh, or or the you know any of these journeys where where we try to whatever it is, whether it's whether it's a diet, whether it's addiction, whether it's um, self-care, whether it's trying to change any, anything. You start to say this day, this day, this month, this year, this person's going to be different, and it isn't. And then you beat yourself up and you can't be self-improvement if you're shaming yourself. And so, I, think, I think sometimes that even is an old pattern that you have to recognize most likely is that 
you were shamed into changing. And so you take that old pattern and you try and shame yourself into changing. Right. You're just being the bad parent to yourself. (laughs) It doesn't work. It it doesn't work. You really have to come at it from a, from a, from a deeper, from a deeper place where just to, just to quickly give a quick, you know, which is embodying your best self and being self compassionate and, and forgiving. Um, and, and, uh, uh, anyway, but back to what we're saying. So, so now what do you do with this? How do you go from, from unconscious, sorry, from conscious incompetence to conscious competence? Yes. It's like, that's just a great question. Right. And, and so, and so, and so, and I'm sure that you talk about this a lot, Marnie, cause I know it's something you stand for and believe in, which is all the stuff came in, uh, pre unintellectually it came in through your feelings through your emotions right like like it it caps on a deeper level so you need a deeper level of healing and, and release and a real commitment and and real patience to say to almost say like there's a you know a, a bug in the operating system or a psychological uh i'm trying to rewire my brain and it's been wired in there for let's say it happened when you were it started when you were born to when you were 17. So it's wider than there 17 years. And now if you're 30 in your thirties, let's say your forties, it's another, uh, you've reinforced that loop for decades. So, so to be really patient with yourself as you think about, well, how can I start to unravel this and I'm not going to do it, you know, thinking might help me plan a course of treatment, but that's really about it. Right. Right. Especially for this deep stuff. Yeah. Thinking doesn't heal us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that this limitation with uh, you know, I don't know if you agree, Marty, with, with, with talk therapy, whereas I feel like talk therapy is great for maintaining a change when you shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for really experiencing that change, something like pit, which we can go into, uh, for me was the moment when I really felt the inner when where I felt the, the inner shift. Yeah. Actually, I said to Dwayne before we got on this call today, that one of the things I wanted to mention is in our last, in our last interview, you had talked about just that, that talk therapy can sort of, it's great, but it only can get you so far. And then you talked specifically about addiction treatment and you said what sets addiction treatment aside. Um, and you, you asked if I agreed and I said, yes, very much so is that that lives are at stake, right? Lives are at stake when we are, uh, when we're working in addiction. And so you have to do what works. And so I wanted to say to you, so what works, right? And that might bring us back to pit, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, if, if someone says that, that there's one thing they want to do, there are many things I've rec- I recommend. Uh, but the big picture did I, did I, I don't know if I said last time, sorry, I totally should have re-listened. Uh, the three things that I think contribute to, to change. I don't think so. I don't think you did. Okay. So, so to me, and I'd, I'd, I'd love your take on it as well, but this is really what worked for me when I've seen work for others is it's three steps. One is deep, uh, emotionally releasing workshops where you go somewhere, you disconnect from your, your normal environment and you're hopefully a puddle of tears in the floor at some point, letting go of all that old pain. So that's one. And in those workshops, and we've all been to them and we haven't all been to them. Many of us have been to them. We, we, we we're, we're transformed by the end of it. We're glowing. It's amazing. And then we go home and slowly like that, that high, disappears and we're we're back we're like wait what happened to the me after that where i was <laughs> i remember going to ones afterward and literally before i ate i would really say express gratitude not just as a habit but to really be grateful for every everything um and so so that step one is doing those deep deep 
uh, emotional transformative workshops that get under the skin, under the hood. Second then is either talk therapy, one-on-one or group therapy, but some kind of maintenance and accountability. So you have these big epiphanies. I, this is who I am, right? <laughs> this is, I know we're not, it's going to no statements and, and this and, and who I am is a loving, compassionate, connected, open-hearted being, right? Not a uh, fearful, uh, codependent, uh, self-medicating being, right? So, right. so you're reminded of who, and then, and then having that maintenance to be reminded that every now and then, oh, remember you, you did that this week. Is that which, which, you know, where did that come from? Did that come from a healthy place or the less healthy place? That's so, the account, the accountability, accountability, piece. right? So, right. so having some form of accountability from a with a professional involved. Uh, third is the tools. So the tools for when you slip. Uh, and, and it all, and it happens. It's, it's not a one, it's not a, a journey upward. It's, it's a, it's a stop and start back and forth, up and down journey. So having tools that, uh, simply being is okay. Uh, reparenting scripts, for example, I know when I came back from, uh, and I was right back in my relationship with Ingrid, who, who, who I mentioned, um, that when she would maybe give me a, a hug and I'd feel the enmeshment thing. Like I'd feel my skin start to crawl. Right. I felt smothered. Right. I'd feel smothered. And she's, and so my reparenting script, I would speak to little Neil to the inner child, the scared inner child and say, Hey, this is Ingrid. She loves you. And she's just expressing love. She's not your mom. She's not trying to use you or take something from you. So relax. I got this. I'll always take care of you. It's okay. Mm. So it's such a beautiful thing. And then instantly would all melt and I could really connect with Ingrid without walls. I want to throw in something. I I really am so touched by what you just said. I actually teach this and I love this. Um, But I also want to mention that the sort of collective socialization of men, and I know this is a whole different topic and I don't want to take us away from this, but I have to just say it, that, that the collective socialization of men teaches men that doing what you just described is not normal. Or that's not what men do. Men don't talk to the little parts of themselves and reassure them, right? Yeah. And and help them and help reparent them. So I do want to acknowledge for for men in general that are out there and are struggling through this process that there is a bit of a like um, this sort of dialectic of I'm being asked to to do all these things that I've I've actually never been encouraged to do in my life. In fact, oftentimes I've been discouraged from right. doing these things. So I just have to say that. And then there's a second part too, which is that there's an idea, which by the way, it's not schizophrenia. It's the wrong word. It's a split personality thing, but people think that's schizophrenia, whatever. So we won't go there, but, but people also think, oh, I'm being asked to split it apart. So talk to each other. That's what I think is schizophrenia or split personality, you know, uh, and, uh, and that doesn't sound psychologically healthy. So it's also resistance to do that because you've seen these, you know, movies that are bear nothing on the truth. So there's also, I've seen that resistance as well. Uh, but I think it's great. I think really, you know, really stepping back and being able to see what part of yourself is being activated. You know, the more I do the work, I have all these different parts I speak to. I have the wanter who who wants, and I have the protector who's trying to protect me. And I'm trying, you know, and I'll say, hey, you don't have to protect me. I'm okay. I got this. And I understand that you want, you know, I'm speaking to my parts all the time because there's an, you know, there's sort of like, you know, there's a CEO and then the CEO running the show or the functional adult is PML Melody would say, uh, you know, and then there's a spiritual self who I'm, I'm consulting. Like I probably have these 10 different parts that I'm in a dialogue with that help me become very 
present and centered. Right. I, I have a question. That probably sounds, probably, probably sounds extreme. No, and I, Dwayne, Dwayne, I know Dwayne wants to talk. I just have to say one thing. Neil, I'm, I do the exact same thing with my parts. Just so right. you know, you're not crazy. It doesn't sound crazy. Um, parts work, in my opinion, is, is really, really valuable. And so you're not alone. I'm right there with you. Yeah, great. That's awesome. It's awesome. It really is powerful. Go ahead, Dwayne. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you this question because I think a lot of people, as they begin this work, um, they struggle with embracing all of those elements. And I think there's a moment as we, in our healing journey, where we, instead of going away from that, we start to move towards it if that makes sense. Like we start to embrace doing those things and doing that work. And I, I'm just wondering like, and that might've been a gradual shift or it might've been just an instantaneous shift. I'm just wondering. It's a great question. It's actually a great question. And one thing I want to say too, is there's an, a, there's also like an addictive nature to doing the work that some people are like, they want it all and they want to do it all. And, it, and to me, all those little parts came on really slowly. You know, but the, the gap between maybe me speaking to my inner child and me speaking to my spiritual self might've been three years, right. you know, yeah. like it, it, is, it isn't like they gave me all the parts. I did it and they were in order. It really is slow because, because it's, it's, it's deeper. It's like moving a mountain instead of moving a car or a, or a toy. Oh. Uh, right. So, so for me, and, and I think hope this will be helpful to other people listening who might relate. So I did that timeline work that you mentioned at the top of the podcast, Dwayne, I did the the, the, the pit stuff, which we're going to mention in a little bit. And then I went back to my environment, uh, struggled with it, acted out for a while. And, and it was probably, it, it was a, it was a good amount of time before I really sort of dove back in. I really, even though I saw this, even though I felt it all, it was really a back, it was really a back and forth until, until I surrendered, you know, until yes. I really, till I really said, I don't know. Uh, all these ideas are just these are, are really uh, escapes. And I really just have to surrender to the work, which to me was actually the hardest step more so Can than I, mid. Yeah, go absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. I yeah. think that is the hardest step it, it is, but there's, there's some, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that the smartest people <laughs> make the toughest addicts. You know, I was reading, I'm reading Carl Carl Jung's book, and he said the only thing harder to deal with as a therapist than a um, than somebody who is a chronic liar is an intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> that is so I, true. I would that. I would yeah. that. Oh my god, yeah. Um, I actually, I wanted to ask you a question about Ingrid, or actually yeah. I just wanted to highlight something. So I imagine that some people that are listening right now are thinking, oh my God, he's mentioning, you know, a couple of years, like it took him to integrate these different parts and pieces and all of that. And um, what does that mean for the partner? And I just want to repeat because from last podcast that you, you were very clear about the fact that um, Ingrid left and you, and yeah. you supported that. And you, and you blatantly said in the last podcast that you think that it is right for people to leave if they are being abused or if somebody is continuing to, to relapse or treat, put them in harm's way. And so, um, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk a sort of about where was Ingrid in this process for you as you were healing? Yeah, she smartly, I mean, she, she intelligent when I, uh, left, left me, um, I think, and I think we tried to make it work, but I was still really unhealthy. And so she really moved on. 
and I really got healthy for 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 me not to get someone back because I don't think that's the right intention in going in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really kind of got healthy with me, and, I, and as I'm healthy, I'm starting to see who she is, and and all those things that are wrong with her. I realize were are just these justifications to escape from intimacy, mm-hmm. and was just fortunate enough that that we were able to reconnect. And, and if we hadn't, that would I totally accepted that. I think really getting deeper in it, I, I want to try to see if I can articulate, articulate this correctly, is, is being healthy enough to accept any outcome without being attached to one. So if if she was with someone else and really happy, I'd be happy for, and, and as a healthier person, I'd attract healthier partners. So so really, it, really being unattached to outcomes, I think is also key, including the outcome of your own healing. It's like, it's really like, oh, this feels good and I'm feeling better and I'm uh, getting down less and I'm less reactive. It just feels great. Everything that I've done that succeeded in my life has been when I didn't want an outcome. But that, I agree. That's huge. Letting go of the outcome is probably one of the most amazing things that we can do, especially when we're doing like this deep work. But it's usually in the early stages that we are so attached to the outcome. Like it's not, it's it's really difficult for a newly sober person or someone who's just getting into sobriety of some kind or some kind of healing and they go into treatment and somebody says, okay, let go of the outcome. That person is not going to just be able to let go of the outcome. That takes work, right? Like right. for you, I imagine to get to the point where you can say, I'm going to let, I, I'm doing this for me. I'm going to let Ingrid go and do what she needs to do. And I'm not attached to the outcome. Like that's something we we have to get to in our recovery. But what, once you, I remember like I used to have my, my, my dad had a temper. I used to have a temper and I wasn't trying to get rid of my temper, but once there were situations that I was in, I was like, Oh, this, I used to get angry in the situation. I'm not angry right now. How interesting is that? Once that happened, I'm like, you know, I was like, Oh, this is amazing. I really thought that would never shift. It was just a side effect of that you know, that trap feeling of enmeshment. So when you feel trapped, you want to, you know, fight or scream your way out or something. Well, so, I think there's safety in this illusion of control. Yeah, no, no exactly. So when, when, when those things start to change and you realize, and the, and the ceiling on what your joy is lifts a little bit higher, uh, you know, I think that's that first taste of this work is great. Here, you know, something else that really discouraged me when I was doing the work, Marnie, I'd be curious for your take on this, is uh, I'd have these amazing say teachers, therapists, and they would say, you know, and they'd say, this, this is a, I'm still in the work. This is a a lifelong thing. You never get rid of it. And then my, in my head, I'd be like, well, why am I doing this then? (laughs) If they're still doing it, like why bother? And what's your answer to that? I think that what I would say is in the early stages, it's a ton of work. I mean, it is to recover from sex addiction and emotional, um, you know, uh, in sorry, intimacy disorders and all of that attachment trauma, it takes so much work. There's individual therapy and couples therapy and group therapy and workshops and all this different stuff. Um, and it, it is a lot of work, but what I believe is you get to a point where you get healthy and then it's all maintenance. It's like, well, how do I want to live my life? And a lot of people look at that as saying, well, I'm going to maintain some kind of a spiritual connection or some kind of a spiritual practice in my life. That's going to keep me connected first to myself, but also to something bigger than me. Right. And that looks different for every person. So um, I do, but I do want to differentiate and say that what it looks like in the beginning, which is like this full-time job, it's really, really does like recovery can be full-time job. That's not what it looks like. Um, later on down the road. 
Dwayne? I, you know, I, I was thinking about as you were as you asked that question, I was thinking about what is that because that journey does seem to continue. And I I think for those of us that may have suffered some adverse childhood events, um, our in a way, our humanity is stripped from us. And this later work after we get through the very destructive behavior is really embracing our humanness and getting in touch with our deep sense of who we are and our humanity and learning to accept humanity, our humanity as it is and and rolling with it. I think that's when I look at that, that's the work. And I think that's maybe until we are no longer here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I always, I think that that makes sense. I feel like we, we work toward getting rid of our baggage and, and, uh, but knowing we'll never get rid of it all. We work toward perfection, knowing we'll never be perfect. And we just, we just see how close we can get. <laughs> right? yeah. That's, and, that's and, the goal. Yes. Yeah. And, and I always say like, the goal is not, cause there's so many people who I work with, I'm sure you do. They're like, I thought I got rid of my low self-esteem. Why did I do that? I'm like, <laughs> no, no, no. So, so I, I, I would say it's like, it's 50, it's, you just want to get rid of 51% of the bad stuff. Like in other words, once it's down to 49%, then you're able to make a choice. You can say, well, I feel this, but it doesn't control me. So I always think 50% I'm making up the numbers. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but, but there's once no empirical data. There's just no so empirical our, data our on this, but, uh, but you know, if it's at a hundred percent, can you get it down just a low enough where if it happens, you can, you can manage it versus it controlling you. Yeah. You're not really like, of course, we're going to feel less than sometimes. Of course, we're going to feel better than sometimes. But can you recognize, oh, I'm feeling less than I'm not going to act out of that. I'm not going to make up a story about myself or that person. Yeah. And again, that's a really wonderful segue into talking about Pia Melody's work and yes. Pitt because the, you know, one up, one down, less than, better than is such a huge, and self-esteem, self-worth, all of that is such a huge part of, of that work. So rather than me as a therapist who's been trained in it and, and uses that model with clients, I would much prefer, um, and I think our, our listeners would too, to hear, hear from you, how you as a client, um, you know, were exposed to that model, what it looked like and how it helped. Yeah, I I love I love this. This is my pet, like therapy that you know. And again, I th- I do I do think to to step back. I do think people the thing that the first thing they did that really shifted them is often the one they're very attached to. But the pit training, I've I, I've just seen it do such transformative stuff. And basically, the way I describe it is like an exorcism of your childhood demons. <laughs> and and it's a very and 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 what it is is um uh. You, you sort of, you, first you, you really, you, let's see, I'm trying to think I've tried, I've tried, it's almost like the, the feeling of it is so strong that I'm trying to get into the intellect they're doing. Cause I really just feel the feeling of you sit in a chair, you bring in, uh, uh the, someone who you have trauma around generally, you obviously can start with your caregivers, uh, and bring them, you, bring them in, um, figuratively, just figure, for those bring who, them yeah. figuratively, yes, not good, literally, good right. Yeah. Cause you could do this with people that have actually passed away as well. Right. You really feel that they're there, and then the, an amazing, loving, compassionate therapist gets right into your inner child, right into your feelings, and you, you know, <clears throat> all the things that you were shame for and given shame for, <clears throat> you release it and give it back to them. Because in a sense, like we're, we're not born feeling less than, we're not born feeling not enough, we're not born with all of these things. They're just passed on by by caregivers who got it from their caregivers who got it from their caregivers. And this is kind of the buck stops here and I'm releasing it all. And, and it can be very, I mean, there were so many times where I'm 
you know, like give you back, you go through these events one by one. And for each one, you, you say that was not about, cause we make up these beliefs when we're younger, right? When we're younger and a parent is, isn't there, we feel we're not enough, right? We're younger and a parent is super critical. We feel again, like we don't do things right. For me, I always felt like I was a bad person and my brother was a good person, but that had nothing to do with me. So, so you really separate it through screaming, yelling, the more you can emotionally feel it, the better. And, and, and you break down, you cry, you're, you're screaming. And I really highly recommend doing it in a small group with other people. You witnessing them is so emotional and then witnessing you and being witnessed as you do this really, I think adds to the, um, the power. It's like that saying in AA, you're sick as your secrets by really being doing this with a, in, in public being seen and supported, you know, it's really powerful. I, I cried. So I've been crying just thinking about it. And Neil, I was actually just going to say, some people might be thinking, what are you yelling and, and all that? And so all of a sudden, literally like viscerally, I, I remembered my own experience being in, you know, going through pit, um, and not just pit training, but also survivors. I went through the survivors program at the Meadows and you're screaming things like, I give you back your shame. Yeah. I give you back your anger, right? Like right. I-, I will not own this anymore. This isn't mine. And I've been carrying this. Like it's a heavy, heavy burden that I've been carrying my whole life. And you know what? I'm done. It is yours. You take it back. That's yeah. some of the, that's some of the stuff that yeah. you're screaming. And, and, you're, and you're very specific. It's like, you're, we li- we've been lying to ourselves our whole life. And now you're telling the truth. You know, and and you're you're and you're taking them to task for it. So to be like to be even very specific, it might start with in in my case, my mom would I'll, I, I'll just say you know, I'll be like you always said negative things about my dad. You said he was a horrible piece of shit in front of me, and then when I did something bad, you say it was just like my dad. So how the fuck am I going to feel, mom, when you're saying my dad's horrible and you're saying I like my dad and I know you hate him? Of course mm-hmm. that's going to make me hate myself. That had nothing to do with me, mom. I give you back your shame. So you're really walking through these events. And you're telling yourself the truth of it, and you're releasing the emotional charge of it, uh, um, and and it's and it's really powerful, and it really has to be done with a great facilitator, you know, such as Marnie. There's a woman named uh, Robin Fortel uh, in San Diego. There's a survivors program at the Meadows, but you definitely want someone pit trained, P I T T, I believe. Yeah, post induction therapy, P I T P. Yeah, post induction therapy. Could you can you and can you also for those who didn't hear the last episode tell everybody what that really means like what does pit mean Oh oh I, oh yeah I, yeah so this I think about it all the time it's uh it's your your childhood is a, is a hypnotic induction you're sort of being brainwashed if you think about it you're born in this family I even see my you know the way my, what my son might believe or, or or not believe you're really being brainwashed into this cult which is yeah, the, the family system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and then uh, and po- and here you're being you're being taken out of your hypnotic induction. And the amazing thing is at the end of it, when you fully just discharged, let it out, cried, screamed, sometimes there'll be a, you know, a, 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 a bat and a pillow or something. Sometimes you're throwing things that imp- therapists will improvise depending on what you need to really let it out. I just, re- and then I just remember the moment when it was all over, like for the first time, like I felt who I was. Wow. And and just literally, the sky was brighter. The everything I was just connected. I was just in the present. Everything that you read about that in spiritual books that you try to get to, you really like. All of a sudden, I just felt like this dark cloud that was over me lifted, and I could see the sun, and I could feel who I was. And and of course, that that you know that that you 
so as soon as you're done, if you ever have these experiences, it's I, I like to it's just nice to walk outside and really just feel what it's like to be you that we have maybe haven't felt ever in our conscious lives. Yeah, it could be very disorienting. It could be yeah. it could be real. It's a it's a it's a total shift, like a like a psychic shift, and it's it also feels like, in my opinion, releasing you know a hundred pounds of weight. Yeah. Well, yeah. And here, and here's really a metaphor for how I think about this. I try to write it into the truth and I, it just didn't fit anywhere. Sometimes when you're doing a book, you have to, you know, kill your darlings as they say. So this didn't fit anywhere, but this is really how I think it works that, um, because as we're saying slowly over time, I, you lose that feeling, but you remember what it's like. So at least, you know, you can get back there, right? You know what it's like, you now you, now you know what the goal looks like. It won't lift it off forever, you know, but now, you know, what the destination is. You can no longer say, oh, I'm feeling, this is me. I'm, what do you mean? I'm happy, (laughs) right? So many people say that. I'm like, well, maybe you, there might be a higher level of happiness you can get to. So I I think of it like a uh, trauma being like a sort of dark ball of energy that's attached to your heart by an elastic band. So when you do uh, the survivor's workshop or the, go through that pit process, you're pulling it out. And for a moment, it's pulled out of your body and away from your heart and your heart is truly open. And then slowly you release the elastic and it attaches again and you keep doing the work and pulling it out and pulling it out and pulling it out over and over again, workshops, therapy, uh, tools, books, everything. You just keep yanking it until eventually that elastic loses its elasticity and then it just kind of hangs loose and isn't attached to you anymore. But I think you have to just keep pulling at it and, and not, and expecting it to, to, uh, to, to want to reattach itself. Does that metaphor make sense? Yeah, I Very love much. that analogy because yeah. I mean I I relate to that kind of statement. That makes a lot of sense to me. But I was also wanted to bring this back around to the relationship because you had mentioned in a hypnotic state, and I'm thinking if you're in a hypnotic state, right? And you, you don't you may not know it because you're in a hypnotic state. You can't have an intimate relationship with somebody. You can't actually have real conversations with them if you're in this state i would imagine that's so hard and that's part of why this work is so important in healing yourself but healing relationships yeah and you don't know it's like if you spend 18 years inside you don't know what the you know with no windows it's weird to walk outside you know what no don't know what that's like i remember uh like um when i like reconnected with ingrid afterward and we like it was the first time i like made like love had like uh, on a on a level at which i really it was a feeling that that uh it's it's almost hard to explain like it was it was really spiritual and 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 powerful and whole bodied and, and i i was never fully present during love making prior to that i'll never kind of forget that feeling yeah. of what intimacy is so i think Dwayne, the point that the point is like we don't know what intimacy is or what love is or these things because, like you said, we've been sort of hypnotized and sort of sleepwalking, so we've never fully been awake. Absolutely. And and also, like you said, you weren't you. You didn't know you like until you had gone through that process. You said all of a sudden you were like, "Wow!" Like, "Oh, this is who I am." So if that's the case, how can you be intimate and share who you are with a partner prior to that when, when who you are is not who you are, if that makes right. sense, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like you're not, 
you know, into me, I see, and I share that with you, the intimacy mm-hmm. uh, thing. I think that's from P. Melody. Well, if you can't see into you, how do you share that? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I've, I actually call, there was a time, I don't do a lot of work with substance abuse these days, but um, earlier in my career I did. And I would refer to any addiction as an intimacy disorder, because what I realized is that if you are having your most intimate relationship with your drug of choice, whatever that is, then that's where you are being most intimate. How could you be most intimate with your own partner? And so um, I feel like something that I'd like people to hear and take away from this interview and from your experience, Neil, is that getting sober, like we didn't even really talk about that process, but getting sober was like the very first step. It was sort of like the prerequisite. And then I want people to hear all of this work that you did, this inner work and the shifts in order to actually get to a point where you said you can come back. And then you had this experience that where you were able to make love with Ingrid. And for the first time you recognized this is, this is intimacy. You hadn't had that before. So recovery right. is so much more than, than I think people think. Yeah, no, no, true, true. It's like, it's not right. It's not about sort of getting sober and being really strict. I think recovery is like recovering yourself. Yeah. I love that. I love that recovery means recovering yourself. Absolutely. I, I totally, I love that statement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and, it, and again, it's like, I find that when I feel like I have to do something because it's supposed to help me, whether it's working out or the work we're talking about, I tend not to stick with it. But when the doing of it is its own reward, it tends to really work. And so, and I think get you know, removing the shame from it, uh, seeing the, the level of happiness you have. But I think the one thing that we, small thing to, to add is because, like to use the wounds metaphor, because these are wounds and that we have uh, our sort of, putting band-aids over them or avoiding them through acting out types of behavior. Uh, when you begin, when you do this work and you pull off the band-aid, it's painful. And I certainly know there were, I want to say there was like a three month period where I was really raw. You know, the wounds were just open. They hadn't been healed yet. So we re- re- reopened them and I was really raw. Everything irritated and annoyed me. I was hypersensitive to everything. I was really at my like, you know, worst, worse than before in a sense, as far as feeling horrible. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's, we, it's worth sort of expecting that there's a part of the process that's going to be painful and horrible because we've been avoiding that. And think of it like a room when you're trying to clean it up, it gets messier first. Right. Or when not, not so much when you're cleaning, when you're organizing. I feel like whenever I organize, it becomes an absolute disaster area right before. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, why did I even try to do this? But then it ends up, it's, you know, it's beautiful. Right. And that's your psyche doing this work. Yes, exactly. So Neil, I have one last question that I want to ask. I could truly talk to you as always forever. I know. Um, um, we never have enough time, but I think this is important. And it's based on something that you said in our last, in our last interview, you said that when you were in treatment, at least at some point, you felt like you were psychologically castrated. And you also, also talked about um, feeling sexually shamed, Mm -hmm. which by the way, I hear a lot. So I, I think that's something that could be really helpful to the people that are listening who have betrayed their partners, you know, who, who are, who are standing in the shame and come into therapy and feel that way. How did you get through that? How did you not let that stop your process? You know, how did that not, how'd you not close the door and say, screw this, I'm done. I'm not going to allow this, this to happen to me. I can't yeah, handle well, the shame. I think, I think that I probably let that get in the way of the process. Probably 
though exactly what you're saying helped it made it last two or three times as long as it needed to. But you left treatment uh, once, didn't you? Didn't you leave? Yeah, yeah, like, I, left, I, right? I left treatment. That was a journey. Like it really, it really, you know, it's, I mean, I think that's interesting. I think everyone's journey to recovery, as well as everyone's kind of like career to being successful always sounds clean, but it really is a bumpy, rocky ride, you know, strewn with, with, uh, with, uh, frustration and, 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 uh, and, and failure and move going in the wrong direction. That really is the journey. And, but I think accepting that and just staying on the journey anyway, like you'll, like a river flowing, you'll find the flow of it. So for sure, like it's okay to feel that, and still do it anyway, right? To to say, uh, to say, okay, I feel like they're doing this, and this is a thing, but I'm going to sort of accept that I feel that way about it, and still stay with it, you know. And of all the things, and Marnie and I had this discussion of all the things that I've done, and I did a lot of workshops, you know, I did tried a lot of different things. Um, I really only had two things that were bad experiences, probably out of trying a hundred or something. And even the bad experiences, you can start to recognize when I was going to, I told the Marnie when I was going to therapy to help me out, how I was feeling in another therapy. Uh (laughs) And I was like, something, Uh something is, uh, something is off here. But the people I know who really recover, and I have a couple people I'm working with now who uh, betrayed a spouse, um, they really, once they commit to it, well, you know, it really just feels good. There's a great quote. I'm sure I said, I might've said in the last podcast, but Wounds, wounds bring drama and trauma. They don't bring peace. And so you'll notice that even if you're struggling with it, that if you make that choice to, to stay with your partner, if they're a healthy person, instead of going off with the, with the, with the affair partner, you get that charge from or something and, and not leaving your child and your family, you know, uh, it just kind of feels right. You just don't have so much stress, even though you might be going through some inner turmoil or sometimes there's, there's a, uh, you know, a painful moment where you have to deal with something here. You know, another thing I was going to ask you, Marnie, a lot of people I notice who, uh, who are doing, who have enmeshment issues, who cheated on a partner and still with that partner, uh, uh, will get the partner may get triggered by something. And then the, the, what would you call the betray the partner who betrayed? What's the name for? What do you call them? Usually, we say the addict, the the addict. The addict. But- okay, so so the addict will then get triggered and be like, "Oh my god, do I have to live with this all the time? Where they're always mad at me or over this?" And, and it's like, "Well, do you 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 traumatized them like three months ago? Just just relax." Right. Right. Like, what do you right, do but that, their childhood yeah. trauma gets exact. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. This is the relational di- dynamic that makes healing from betrayal so difficult. It's that you can really have somebody who has hurt their partner who really does want to help her heal. But then when they get triggered into their own trauma, right, th- their partner is having a trauma reaction based on the fact that they betrayed her, that person betrayed her. And that's why she's reacting. But then his own trauma reactions get stirred up, right? From, from childhood and like, oh my God, how long is this going to go on? And that, and that further wounds the relationship. So it's, you know, I think it's just important for us to say, like, take a deep breath and say, this is a process. This is, you know, there's, this isn't a one size fits all model. Um, we don't have all the answers, (laughs) you know, um, we can't really say how long it'll take, but I think, I think if you listen, if you co- if you comb through this episode and you listen, I think that there's actually quite a lot of, I can already tell, a lot of these like just little nuggets that are really helpful and write them down and keep them someplace. And um and and also know that, 
healing is possible because, you know, I imagine Neil, that if I had met you prior to the time I met you, I would have met a very different person. Yeah, you probably went to like me. <laughs> you to make, become friends. I, I have one. I have one last thing I was thinking about that. That is probably the, one of the best piece of advice I got. Most helpful piece of advice I got since doing the truth, uh, especially as someone with kind of enmeshment issues, is is uh, when and I'm I've never articulated, it, so I want to kind of say it right, which is when your partner asks you to do something that maybe they feel like they might need but you don't want to do it or you don't feel that they're correct in it. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that there's no demand, that there's nothing you have to do. Uh, and if you empathize with the way they're feeling, instead of hearing a demand that you have to comply with or not, it makes a huge shift. So I think a, a sort of a functional adult way of doing this is I need you to, uh, I need you to never talk to any female again, to cut off all your female friends and lead them from your phone, or I need you to be home every night or whatever it may be. It could be anything. And it's really a big deal to them. You, you get, get to stop and decide what's healthy given the context and the situation. Okay. Is there anything going on with these female friends in my life? Is there any weird energy there? If I brought my partner there to lunch with them, would it be weird? Is there anything there? And you get to sort of make a healthy decision about what's healthy for you and them in the relationship. And then you get to decide what you want to do, right? Because if you do something they want you to do to make them feel better, but it feels like you're, but doesn't feel right to you, you will end up with resentment and be back in that situation that triggered you to act out in the first place. But you can say, oh, it probably does feel bad. How does that feel? It sounds like you need more connection and trust. And you can really deal with the bigger, you can discuss the bigger issues they're feeling without feeling have to like you have to comply. So it's about understanding, not about obeying. Love that. I love that. I love that. I would, I would, everyone who's listening to this and going through this, listen to that advice and and embrace it because you can shift all of your thinking and that helps shift your behavior and your tone and everything and, and makes things work. Can you say yeah. it one more time? Yeah, I'll, I'll say it in another way. Uh, well, I'll, I'll recommend a resource. I don't know if we discussed nonviolent communication last time, Marshall Rosenberg stuff. Oh, that's a great book. But NVC is a great book. The audio program is even better. Because uh, the book can be really hard to get through because it's a little slow moving, uh, but the audio program "Nonviolent Communication" Marshall Rosenberg is amazing, and it's about uh, it's about the short version is if you really cut to the feelings and the needs. Any feeling comes from an unmet need, and what's the need? So when somebody is saying, "I need you to do this," it's a strategy for getting a need met, and the need is connection, trust, safety whatever it may be, there are many needs and you can really just discuss that need. Right. And, and there, there's so many revolutionary ideas in it. I think in terms of something that I've spending my life trying to get better at it's NBC, it's, it's a, it, it is a, it is a game changer. Um, and I highly recommend it. I have a couple of posts on my blog that describe it. If you just search Neil Strauss and NBC, there's sort of a three part series that might help you with it, but really we'll, we'll put some links on the website yeah. to that too. So people can go to the website and get it. It's radical. So the short version of the idea is no one is making you do anything. I love when people are my partner, no one's making you do anything. It's always a free choice. And you get to say in your relationship, you get to say, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. And the other person gets to make a free choice as well. So mm -hmm. that's the same with trust and honesty. If you want to go, if you want to go sleep with someone else, no one is keeping you from sleeping with someone else. You can tell your partner, I want to sleep with that person. And they say, if you do, I'll leave you. 
and you get to make the choice. If sleeping with that person is more important than your relationship, you get to do it. There's no, for, for me, I really put my partner in the mother role of telling me what I could and couldn't do. And then resenting and it, her, I'm sure. Yeah, and then resenting her yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah, then hurting her. Yeah. Like you really have complete freedom if you act with total integrity. I'm really glad you mentioned that because we talk about boundaries all the time for a partner. How does she stay safe after learning about the betrayal and um, what can she do to keep herself safe? And so often the partner will make certain boundaries and you mentioned some of them. So it might be like, I don't want you to go out with the guys or I don't feel like comfortable with you going out and drinking or, um, you know, socializing, let's say with female um, uh, colleagues and the, other person might feel really resentful about that. Like, like you're trying to control me. And so I'm, I'm constantly working with the men to understand, no, that's not a punishment and it's not control. It's, it's a, it's a need that she has in order to stay in a relationship with you based on what she learned that you did. You do not have to say yes to the boundary. And then she does not have to stay in the relationship where she feels unsafe. So both people always have choices. Yeah. And you get to discuss it. You can say, well, I think it would make you safe. I'm happy to do that for six months or, you know, for, and then let's revisit it and see how you're feeling, you know, and if you want this to be forever, maybe this isn't the right relationship for me. Cause I think the other side of it is I've seen people really heal and recover, but the partner not recover that trust. Yeah, It's really hard because it's unfair on the, on the, um, what do you call the, if the addict is the one who acted out, what's the other one? The partner. The partner. It's really unfair on the partner because now they have to spend all this time healing from something that was your choice, you know? So really having a lot of empathy for your partner and what they've been through, you know, is so important if you're doing this work and 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 they're not here's one more. I, I got it. Okay, I'll say this and we'll stop. But okay, I, okay. Okay. I love it. I, I really I really people for people who want to who get are getting triggered in their relationships, as long as again the person is being not emotionally or physically abusive, like stay in commit to the relationship. And learn these tools because I don't think anyone's. This is a broad statement, so see if you agree. I, but I don't think anyone's qualified to know what their relationship is unless they're remaining a functional adult in the relationship. Like you can't see it. So till you can really see what's happening clearly and not be triggered or reactive inside or outside to things that your partner is doing, you really don't know what it is. So if you do the work to stay healthy in the relationship, you'll get to see who your partner is and what the relationship is, and if it works out great. And if it doesn't, you now have the tools to get in a healthy relationship. I think that's great advice. Yeah. You can't make that decision until you're congruent in yourself. Yeah. 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 No, it's really, and and the sign really is, is like, are you getting, are you getting reactive? Are you getting emotionally charged? Oh, you know, by, by, by things, not are you feeling emotionally, getting emotionally charged to a greater degree than the situation calls for? Uh, you know, are you getting stuck in stories, all these things and really working to get out of it is so powerful. And I noticed it's a relationship. I noticed when I shifted and Ingrid's and I as a relationship, when I shifted, she might be really upset about something and, and, and be, uh, um, you know, talking to me in a way that's unpleasant. Uh, and I might say, Hey, I, like, I don't love the way you're talking to me right now. So I'm going to step away and let's revisit this at some point later. And if I, if I'm really cool headed, I really don't engage Step away later, she comes back and she's like, hey, I'm sorry I said those things. And if I engaged, that never would have happened. So you shifting actually shifts the entire relationship. Right. 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 
Sorry, I had so much to That's say, okay. but I love it. It's, we're so rare. I get to talk to two people who are in the same world, who have the same passion I do. I, I love talking about this. No, it's so great to have you on. And, I, and I, I've been looking forward to being able to, to talk with you and, and, and uh, ask you more of these questions and just get your feedback. Because I can tell that you've done so much work and you're, you, you have so much wisdom about it to share. So I appreciate you sharing it with all the listeners. Yeah, no, and I feel grateful for the journey. I really feel if I didn't take it, I just would have missed out on my life or just lived it in the dark, you know? Yeah. And like you said, then and you wouldn't have me as a friend. Exactly, worst of all. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. And it's good to have Barney as a friend. All right, the last thing I'm going to say, which is not, it's not a question, but I, I think is really important is that I love what Neil just said about being a functional adult, that you need to be able to be a functional adult in order to heal the relationship. And I say this with the most love and care possible, no shame, just truth, that a lot of our listeners and a lot of the people, for instance, that are in um, in our Facebook group, our Helping Couples Heal Facebook group, um, are not in their functional adult. And that is why there's often so much crisis and, and that's why therapy and really, really good specialized therapy is so important. So I, I hope that everybody out there is finding the help that they need. Dwayne and I are actually going to be doing a, um, a podcast in a couple of weeks about how do you find the right therapist? Because we get that question a lot. Um, and Neil, I just, you know, I'm grateful for the work that you did. I'm grateful for our friendship and I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for coming back and talking with yeah. us again. Yeah. It's good to see you both. I'm glad you could join us this time, Dwayne. Thank you, Neil. Okay. Bye guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Dwayne and Marnie in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.